Saturday. It's January 13th, 2024, and you are listening to Morning Meeting. I'm Ashley Baker in London. And I'm Michael Haney in New York City. And we can't promise you total immunity from the full wrath of the law, but we can promise you a fun, stocked episode full of all the good things from the new issue of Airmail, Michael. Absolutely. We've got a terrific show. And if you finished up watching The Crown and are in need of a monarchy drama fix, Joseph Bulmore is here with not just one, but two, yes, two stories out of Europe about royals and royal adjacent women behaving questionably. The first is about the Queen of Spain, who finds herself dealing with the outing of a love affair. And the second is a 20-year-old named Countess Lara Cosmo Henkel von Donnersmark. And I'll let him tell me if I've said that correctly, but she is a social media star who now finds herself trying not to be canceled. Then, speaking of drama, let's talk about Angelina Jolie. The always insightful Dana Brown has a look at why her pop-up boutique in New York might be the most sustainable clothing store ever. And finally, David Christopher Kaufman shares his thoughts on one of the most distressing casualties of the war between Israel and Hamas, the bond between Black and Jewish Americans. Ashley, feeling I know where you want to begin, but why don't you tell us where you'd like to begin today? Okay, Michael, like when the world gets too crazy and you need a bit of solace from reality... Go down to Lower Manhattan and try to make your way into the Angelina Jolie boutique. I forgot what it's called, but Dana Brown is going to remind us. Dana is also a writer and a producer, a former deputy editor of Vanity Fair, and his memoir, which is fantastic, is called Dilettante, True Tales of Excess, Triumph, and Disaster. Welcome, Dana. Hi, Ashley. Hi, Mike. So Angelina Jolie is apparently now a fashion designer or a retailer or something. What is going on with Yes, I think it's a little of both, actually. She has opened a store on Great Jones Street. It's called Atelier Jolie. And what I think it is, is a fashion line that does collabs with other designers and sells it in the store. And then there's a second floor of, and I'll get more into the building in a moment, a second floor where you can bring in your old clothes and they will sort of, I think the word is upcycle, I think, and they will make new things out of them for you. So this is her sort of leap into the world of sustainable fashion. So she's going to charge you a premium to make something new out of something that you no longer want. Is that right? Yes, that's basically correct. I mean, that is half the business. I think the other half is creating sustainable clothes. I believe her first collaboration was with Chloe, and I think that's what's in her store right now, which I wasn't actually allowed to shop in the store. So I don't quite know what the clothes actually look like. Why were you not allowed to shop there? I find that hard to believe, Dana. You know what, Mike? I think they just opened a few weeks ago. I think they got a lot of press attention. I think Angelina is is on site occasionally. There were some paparazzi photographs of her sort of going in and out. And so I think they're just being cautious and they think they're trying not to just let a stampede of people come in to try to catch a glimpse of Angelina, I think. So it's appointment only to shop. So I went and knocked on the door and gave them my name and number and I never got a phone call. So I couldn't shop. And so I tried to write a piece about a store that I was not allowed to go into, which was new for me. Well, Dana, you eventually managed to squirrel your way in. How did you do that? Yes. Well, I read up a little bit more and I knew that there was a cafe 
There's a little cafe in the back of the store. Now, I should talk about this building briefly because it is sort of a pedigreed New York building. It's a little two-story brick building painted white on Great Jones right off of the Bowery. And it was owned by Andy Warhol for a number of years. I think he bought it in 1970. And then in the 80s, he rented it out to Jean-Michel Basquiat. So Basquiat famously lived on the second floor. I believe he lived there. He definitely painted there. I think it was a sort of live work studio space. And he painted a lot of incredibly famous canvases there and died there. So the building is sort of this this living sort of tribute to Jean-Michel Basquiat and street art. There is graffiti covering the front of the building, which the Atelier Jolie people left as sort of a tribute to street art and Basquiat. So when you walk by it, it just looks like a sort of graffitied building. There's a single glass door that gets you in, and that's the one that I couldn't get through at first. But so I went and knocked the second time. Being the dogged reporter that I am, I went a second time and I knocked on the door and they said it's appointment only. And I said, well, I heard there's a cafe. Is that open to the public? And security guards sort of looked me up and down and let me in. I could go into the store. I could walk by the clothes to go sit in the cafe in the back, but I wasn't allowed to go browse the clothes or buy the clothes. I thought was an interesting approach to retail. You were not allowed to touch the hem of the upcycled garments. No, I don't think these were the upcycled garments. These are the new ones. The upcycled garments, I think, is you have to go on the second floor and work with tailors to sort of fantasize what you're going to do with the sort of old pair of paper jeans from 2002 or whatever. I think that's a different part of the business. When you get to the cafe and back, is there Miraval Rosé? I mean... No, no. I don't think there would be. I think she sold that. And I think that's part of her sort of nasty divorce from her ex-husband, Mr. Brad Pitt. It was a menu inspired by sort of immigrant communities in New York. So there was there was a lot of little, I think they were called Syrian mini pies, I saw the New York Times called them. So I ordered a few things. I ordered some baklava and some little Syrian mini pies, a little cheese pie, a little olive turnover thing. It was all very good. I mean, I'll say this about the cafe. It's a very cute little, I think I described it as a jewel box. It's a tiny little white space with a few seating areas, very nice furniture, really tastefully done. The food was all good. Coffee was hot. It's a sweet little cafe if you know how to get in there. Was anyone sitting there with their laptop and just like setting up for the day, making it their new Starbucks? I think that's your next move, Dana. There were no sandwich wraps and things like that. No like Wi-Fi password on the wall. No, it wasn't that sort of thing. It was very, very upscale. There were a few other couples in there, very sort of boho chic looking couples. Yeah. I mean, look, it's a cute little cafe, but it's uh, probably a big nut on the rent of that building. And I don't think the cafe is going to provide them with that much income. So at some point they will need to have shoppers in the store. Dana, I love your story so much, but you were so much more generous than I would have been on this. Like my gut response with anything Angelina Jolie related is sort of just eye roll. Like, I don't know why she kind of just bugs me. Like, what did you think of the aesthetics of this? Like, does she have good taste in fashion? Like, do you like what she's doing? If you had infinite budget? I couldn't tell you. I couldn't see the clothes, Ashley. I don't know. I have no idea what the clothes look like. Listen, I think she has good taste and good style. So I would assume the stuff looks good. Again, I wouldn't know. I thought, and once people read the piece, they'll realize that what I did was I put it into ChatGPT. So I actually had ChatGPT write the story for me which I thought was a, sort of all I could do because I couldn't get in the store. And I thought maybe I could pull this one over on the airmail editors. Didn't quite
quite work out that way. And so I sort of intertwined it into the piece. But what was funny to me was that ChatGPT nailed the voice of a celebrity launching a sustainable fashion line. The quotes were so sort of on point. And that immediately sort of led me to believe that there is a lot of celebrity-backed sustainable fashion lines out there, enough that ChatGPT, which is not very good at writing, can sort of create these quotes that might as well have been real, which I thought was very telling. And there's a lot of sustainable fashion out there, and I don't know if much of it is working. I don't know if these are successful businesses yet. So we'll see. I mean, maybe this is the one. Maybe this is the one that takes off, Ash, and you'll be eating your words about Miss Jolie. I love your optimism. Look, love the story. Love talking to you. And your new column is fantastic. Can't wait for the next. Thank you for having me. Bye, guys. See you, Dana. Bye, Dana. See you at the cafe. Mini pies all around. Yeah. And the Wi-Fi password. We've got to get the Wi-Fi password. Then we just hang out there all day. <laughs> Well, Michael, I know what I'm not getting you for your birthday. A shop visit to Angelina's little place. Basically. Well, speaking of money and excess and strange behavior, it seems like a natural segue to bringing Joe Bullmore on this road right now. Okay, Joe's here to talk about two fascinating women. One is a crowned head of Europe and the other is the toast of TikTok, who may or may not be tainted by scandal. We don't know. We're going to find out. And we're happy to have him here. Joe is a writer at large for Airmail and the editor of Gentleman's Journal here in London. Welcome, Joe. Joe, let's start with your first story this week, all about Countess Lara Kozma Henkel von Donnersmark, a 20-year-old European aristo slash student who is also a TikTok star, primarily due to, as you note, her videos showing her getting ready for posh events all over Europe. But now, as you detail in your story, she's found herself in a bit of a scandal involving unfounded allegations her family may or may not have ties to the Third Reich. So who is she? Well, we know she lives in a really beautiful apartment in Paris because we see all over her TikTok, as you say. She's appearing to be living an absolutely joyous life that is probably familiar to someone like Marie Antoinette. She goes to balls in Spain. She goes to Le Bal des Débutantes in Paris and she wears sort of golden ball gowns as she does so. But I guess different to Marie Antoinette slightly, she broadcasts all of this to her three quarters of a million TikTok followers who for a long time lapped up this sort of fairy tale Disney princess life that a uh, young Lara seems to be living. But as with any success on the internet, there was a sort of sting in the tail as soon as the TikTok detectives got digging into her family name. So Lara Cosima is an intern at Dior. She's 20 years old. She studies at the Parsons Design School in Paris. She grew up in California because her father, Florian, is a notable film director and producer, best known probably to US audiences for doing The Tourist, which was an Angelina Jolie and Johnny Depp vehicle, but won, I think, the Best Academy Award for Best foreign feature film for the lives of others, which came out in 2007 and was all about sort of life under the Stasi regime in Germany. So he's a German. He comes from this noble house, Austro-Hungarian house, Austro-German house of the Donnersmarks. And his daughter is, yes, is sort of, I guess, putting her first feet forward in, in a similar world, albeit in a completely different era. And yeah, it's been an interesting journey for her, I think. And so as you say, then she's now a social media star, whatever that means. And yet that comes with its own perils, right? Yeah. 
Definitely. She's racking up, as everyone seems to on TikTok, which is a brave new world I'm not necessarily too familiar with, but she's racking up millions and millions of views of these videos, which are essentially 10 second clips of her in her beautiful gilded apartment saying, get ready with me as I get ready for a ball in Spain. And she twirls in her dress and talks you through a couple of outfit choices. And these get 9, 10, 11, 12 million views, some of them. The most popular one, however, got was quickly inundated with comments that were less than complimentary. And essentially, the trend became to call her Miss Blood Money and accuse her of essentially profiting down the line from the most horrendous period in German history and essentially being Nazi war profiteers and having those in her, I guess ancestors. So that it took a rather dark turn from what was look at me in my nice dresses to suddenly how does this girl have all her family money and maybe we should cancel her for her Nazi links. But that's the internet for you. So are those Nazi links for real? After this huge backlash over the summer over her multi-million viewed videos, she gave an explainer video saying she'd look through the sort of family annals and in fact people were linking her to another Donna's Mark family line that essentially had no real link to theirs at all. The analogy she uses in that video is that she is as closely related to those Donna's Marks as George W. Bush is to Barack Obama, or she goes on to say she is to King Charles. But as I say in the piece, knowing the Euro aristocracies, that last one's probably not too distant at all. But having looked through it, and the airmail fact checkers, I believe, have done their due deal on this as well, rigorous as ever. And the New Yorker did an interview with her father addressing some of these a few years back. It seems that they are not at all related to Nazis. I want to make that absolutely clear. So as I say in the piece, she's just a good old-fashioned Nepo baby, not a Nazi baby. She should have made a hashtag with that in it. Maybe that would have cleared everything up. Well, so, Joe, let's talk about, as you just know, everyone in European royalty and those families seem to be connected, and yet they also seem to stumble through social media problems. Let's go to Spain for your second story this week and what's happening there and the Queen of Spain and some social media problems over there. Yeah, definitely. This time, the Spanish royal family has come unstuck by a sort of a pesky outsider, or perhaps not much of an outsider at all. The basic story is that Queen Letizia, who's married to King Felipe, the current king, for the longest time, those two have been seen as the sort of young, very much Wills and Kate of the Spanish royal family. Happily married, a modern breath of fresh air, both very photogenic and good looking. But it seems that Queen Letizia's past has reared its ugly head on Twitter because one of her former boyfriends, a chap called Jaime del Burgo, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, he tweeted a sort of fairly innocuous photo of her in a pashmina shawl and said that there was a very sultry, suggestive caption with it and that he had given her the pashmina shawl and she was wearing it as some sort of token of their love. And in fact, his whole reveal has been that when Everyone thinks they broke up long before she was going out with the king. Actually, their love affair very much overlapped with this royal marriage and they were lovers and have declared their love to each other many times over the years and there's still some sort of feeling there. So this has kind of come out of nowhere, blindsided the Spanish royal family who are not unfamiliar with scandals, let's just say. Thanks to their sort of the aging patriarch, Juan Carlos, who is currently in exile, we think, in the United Arab Emirates. But Joe, as you note in your story, he's in exile. He was no fan of Letizia, who had her own checkered background and so tell us he referred to her as the maid because she was too common right but how did this woman become queen and who's behind all this social media is it as simple as we think it is there appears to be layers of conspiracy theories and we can peel back a few without completely losing our minds but Juan Carlos who as I say in the story the most surprising thing about this is that he isn't at the center of it because any story involving scandals and affairs and money and 
jilted lovers usually has him right in the middle of it. He is a man who claims to have slept with 5,000 people, has a renowned illness for money, and basically never met a dodgy foreign backer that he didn't try and milk. So the conspiracy theory goes that he doesn't like Queen Letizia, his daughter-in-law, because she is, as he sees it, a working woman. She was a well-known news anchor, very popular, and he thinks that's pretty despicable. He calls her La Chacha, which means the maid in front of her friends, and she's a divorcee as well, so he thinks that's pretty low grade. The journalist bit, the fact that she's a news anchor, seems to be the bit that rankles him most, so he calls her the enemy within, and there's probably been a hundred journalistic investigative probes into his lifestyle, so he's probably got good reason to fear journalists. But basically, this conspiracy theory runs that he is the one behind this new emergence of details and sordid little pictures from Jaime. And he is pulling the strings from afar, perhaps to destabilize his own son's reign, knock him off the throne, and at the age of 80-whatever and gout-ridden and surely in the pay of some dodgy money, come back and storm whatever the palace in Madrid is. So that is one of the more out-there conspiracy theories, which has been backed up by sort of Spanish royal commentators and the type of people who usually wield out for quotes on these things, saying that it is plausible that there could be rebellion from the very ranks of the monarchy. The other theory is that this, in fact has been conducted by the socialist prime minister at the moment who is working with Jaime del Burgo to destabilize the monarchy and perhaps bring back Spanish Republic. So either it's monarchists killing monarchists or Republicans killing monarchists, but in some way there's going to be some very unhappy people in the royal palace in Spain right now. My favorite little detail of all this that is a little parenthetical tucked into your fantastic story is Del Burgo, the paramour of current queen. When he couldn't marry her, who does he marry? <laughs> he marries the queen's sister. He marries the queen's sister. Yeah, the most mind-mogging bit of this all that is sort of overlooked is not only is he the ex-boyfriend of the Queen, he's the ex-brother-in-law of the Queen as well, which sort of doesn't seem to make any sense if you think you're having a stroke when you read that. But yeah, he after he advances or he realised it wasn't going to go any further with the Queen because she was married to the King of his country, he decided he'd go for second best, which is the Queen's sister, Telma. They divorce, perhaps unsurprisingly, two years later. It's also a super savvy strategic way to make, well, I always get invited to the family dinners, so it doesn't look suspicious if I'm, I'm at the table now. I'm part of the family. Having been on Jaime del Burgo's personal website, which is a remarkable thing if you believe it all, he is involved in every single industry you can think of. He's a playwright. He's worked in Hollywood. He's worked in construction, robotics, property. He says he was the youngest ever qualified doctor in Spanish history. He's a lawyer. He's a financier. The man can apparently do a bit of everything and maybe he can and maybe this is his final hurdle in a life of achievement is to topple a monarchy and bag a queen who knows well joe they are two fantastic stories and we count on you to be our peter morgan and detangle all these threads and weave them into a masterful narrative as you have so thank you todd michael a lot of complication both of these stories make a really good argument for staying inside, never leaving, and having nothing exciting happening in your love life. Yeah, be boring, right? Yeah, it's just like COVID lockdown. That's our motto for 2024. The good old days of March 2020. Oh, Michael, from here, there's only one place to go, and that is the Culture Wars. Hooray! Well, and we've got a great guide to take us there this week in David Christopher Kaufman, who's got a sort of very smartly written essay this week about the casualties of the Israel-Hamas war and the harmony between Black and Jewish Americans. David Kaufman is an editor and a columnist at the New York Post, a regular opinion writer for The Telegraph, and an adjunct fellow at the Tel Aviv Institute. We're happy to have him. Welcome, David. 
Hello, thank you. So David, as you write in your View From Here column this week, the war between Israel and Hamas has exposed a lot of tensions between the Jewish and Black communities in the U.S. How do you see that? How do I see that? I think that there has been sort of this historic equilibrium and covenant between Blacks and Jews to a level of mutual respect based on common shared history and sort of this idea that both Blacks and Jews have a legacy of discrimination and oppression in the U.S. What the Hamas attack on Israel and the subsequent war between Israel and Hamas in Gaza, and more importantly, this sort of tsunami of anti-Semitism across the nation, across the world, it's unleashed a sort of unprecedented confrontation between Blacks and Jews that we really haven't seen in a very long time, if ever. Black groups, Black leaders, have been some of the most vocal critics of Israel in their efforts to contain Hamas in Gaza. And they've also been some of the most vocal critics of President Biden and his ongoing support of Israel and their effort to eradicate Hamas, most specifically the ongoing uh, supply of, of military equipment. We also saw early on in the conflict major crit- critiques from Black Lives Matters groups, as well as prominent Black intellectuals. And I think what it's done is revealed this underlying tension between Blacks and Jews that nobody really spoke about for a long time, and now has been sort of given license by the attack by Hamas, the anti-Semitism tsunami, going through the nation and the strong voices amongst black leaders in regards to these issues. David, I would just also just point out for our listeners, you also come at this from a very unique personal perspective as well. You're black and Jewish, so you're at the intersections as well. Yes, that's correct. My mom is Jewish and my father's African-American. So this is an issue that's very personal and one I have obviously been paying a lot of attention to. Also, I want to add that the Claudine Gay brouhaha scandal, if we want to call it, I think this has also emerged as sort of the key flashpoint, even more so necessarily than the actual attack by Hamas on Israel and the resulting initial anti-Semitism. What happened after the attack was an immediate condemnation by many groups at Harvard, basically laying the blame for this attack on Israel, the outpouring of anti-Semitism, and then former President Gay's uh, disastrous performance in front of Congress. And then the resulting sort of focus on getting her removed from her presidency and from her office led by Bill Ackman. And I think this particular instance is very important here because what you really have, as I sort of described it, is an unprecedented confrontation between Blacks and Jews around Claudine Gay, led very much by Bill Ackman and other Jewish leaders who really saw former President Gay's performance at Congress in front of Congress as a huge failure, insisted that she be removed from office following the allegations of plagiarism. It's sort of delicate to phrase it this way, but in the main, this was the campaign to remove President Gay from office was very much led by Jews, powerful, wealthy Jews. And that's basically a fact. And what that does is it sort of raises the most sort of sinister stereotypes of Jews as having oversized influence in the culture, having oversized economic resources, and basically almost coming together to remove this Black woman from office, which is, in the end, somewhat of a tragedy. She has really been sort of caught in this cultural war, and much of her ouster was led by Jews in a sort of public aggressiveness or a level of aggression that we really haven't seen before. Bill Ackman, David being chief among them, Bill being the billionaire investor. Who are some of the main players on both sides of this? Yeah. So where do we begin? I mean, of course, the Claudine Gay scandal revealed Bill Ackman as sort of the protagonist in chief here. Then you had one of the Louder brothers who also took it, Ronald Louder took it upon himself to end his funding of Harvard because of the anti-Semitism situation, as well as Levatnik, who 
was also Jewish who withdrew funding from Harvard. So we have in the Harvard situation, three very, very high profile, very wealthy Jewish men, then who then took on Claudine Gay and had her removed. More recently, we've seen an example in, of all places, Utah. Early this month, there was a quartet of Orthodox rabbis who protested against Kyrie Irving, the basketball player, the Mavericks basketball player, who apparently has had a few very high-profile anti-Semitic incidences and who's also taken to wearing kafiyas at press conferences in order to show his support of the Palestinian cause. He, of course, is Black, and he's been quite vocal in offering some particularly anti-Jewish, anti-Semitic sentiments that a lot of Jewish leaders have felt are only continuing to stoke the current crisis. And then, of course, we have the Oscars, which are coming up. I think the Oscars actually will, in some ways, emerge as one of the major focal points going forward in the next few weeks. This week, the Oscars made announced a series of DEI initiatives that compel films that are being nominated for Best Picture this year to meet a series of diversity and equity and inclusion initiatives, those issues don't include Jews. So Jews basically are not recognized as minorities within this Oscar DEI prerequisite. And the fact that Jews and anti-Semitism have not been honored by the Academy in their attempt to diversify the best picture offerings has resulted in many, many major high-profile Jews, including David Schwimmer and Juliana Mogulis, writing an open letter to the Academy and saying, this situation has to change. I think that this battle now has shifted from one about Israel and Hamas and then to anti-Semitism onto the bigger DEI question that's roiling across America. Jews only make up 2.4% of the population in the U.S., so they're very much the most minority of high-profile minorities in the U.S. And we've also seen anti-Semitic incidents rise over 300% over the past few months since the Hamas attack on Israel. But despite these very clear and, and startling data points, Jews really aren't considered minorities when it comes to DEI. And I think this is going to emerge as another major flash point as Jews demand to be accounted within the DEI space and within the DEI conversation. We could also see this potentially even reaching the Supreme Court, as we saw last year with the takedown of affirmative action by the court at Harvard. David, how do you think that the Claudine Gay decision is going to sit in the months and years to come? I mean, obviously, tensions are still high, right? But fundamentally, how do you think that the history is going to look back at this moment? I think history is going to look back at the Claudine Gay removal and players like Ackman and their role in it as a watershed moment. I really think it was an event of, as I described it, of a spectacular unprecedented. Who could have imagined a year ago that a Black female president of an Ivy League university, which within sort of the context of DEI and our current identity industries and identity politics-focused world, a Black woman at the top of an Ivy League is sort of considered untouchable within the identity politics movement. The fact that white Jewish men essentially brought her down, I, I think is going to be viewed, looking back, as a watershed moment of unprecedented Jewish confidence and reach in the ability to shift policy and to shift the national narrative and conversation. I mean, who could have imagined that a bunch of white guys would essentially come together to take down a black woman? And I do feel that there is going to be a much heavier critique of Jewish involvement in political and public discourse in the coming months, the removal of President Gay. Well, David, thank you so much, not only for your reporting, but also for your insights and your point of view on this incredibly important moment. Thank you. Thank you, David. 
Michael, I know you've got something for me. I do, darling. It just started on Apple, and it's called Criminal Record, and it is a cat and mouse game set inside the London Police Department, and it stars Kush Jumbo as a kind of newish young cop coming up against a veteran and perhaps sinister cop played by Peter Capaldi. It's great. I've only seen the first episode, which dropped the other day, but I'm all in. It's moody and dark and gritty, and it's super cool that way they use London as this backdrop in a way you kind of don't often see. But most of all, the scenes between the two of them, I think, are terrific. It's filled with tension. I'm keen to see where it goes. It's called Criminal Record, and it's on Apple TV. And you, my dear, I know you've got something equally amazing. Okay, can we talk about Slow Horses? Absolutely. We just finished it this weekend. Tell me where you want to begin. The weird thing is, is the show has been out for several years, and I don't know why everyone just discovered it within the last three or four weeks. But I mean, I can't get enough of this thing. Season four better come out soon. It's like Gary Oldman is giving a masterclass in acting. Kristen Scott Thomas is at the height of her powers. I'm just walking around telling everybody that I'm going to call the dogs on them all the time. I can't help it. It's lingo has worked its way into my mind. Yeah, I just saw they announced season four and five and so it's great but I love this show loved it from the from the drop as one might say and it's just makes you if you've never read the books by Mick Heron I highly recommend those it's 21st century spooks and handlers but it's all through the lens of messed up MI5 agents couldn't be better it's too good okay who's your favorite character Oh, this season I really love Standish. I would somehow watch a whole show about her. I love her kind of backstory, but you can't get enough Gary Oldman either. Can't get enough of Jackson Lamb. Although I do find River Cartwright to be ridiculously charming in his own way too. He's a necessary antidote to those two. And I just want to be called into Kristen Scott Thomas's office and be given a talking to. That's what I want. Not if you're Dame Ingrid. Anyway, okay, too much inside baseball. You're an excellent company. If you love slow horses as much as we do, well, we're very glad you're listening to this podcast. It's what we call serendipity. All right. Well, Michael, on that note, lots to do. I've got to get back to the morning show, my newest obsession, which I know I'm four years late to, but I can't stop watching. And will you please read us out? I'd be happy to. And I'll see you at the Emmys. Morning Meeting is produced by Airplay Productions and edited by Jesse Cannon. Our co-editors are Graydon Carter and Alexander Stanley. Our chief operating officer is Bill Keenan. And our deputy editors are Ashley Baker, Chris Garrett, Nathan King, Julie Vitale, and Ash Carter. Our CMO is Emily Davis. And our music supervisor is Randall Poster. The theme music is The Cute Monster by the Buddy Colette Quintet. A new edition of Airmail is published every Saturday. So please subscribe and enjoy all of our stories on airmail.news, which you update every day. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram at Airmail Weekly. But we will be back here next Saturday with another edition of Morning Meeting. But in the meantime, be sure to subscribe at Spotify or Apple Music, but most of all, 